Hi, uh, Father Mark. I just wanted to compliment you all on the podcast. I'm really getting a lot out of them, and I thought I'd call and thank you for those. I've also seen online the Ephesus School. I'm very impressed with that. Again, I want to call and thank you all for offering that. I think it's remarkable. Please pass on my thanks also to um, Rich and Holly for their good work, and I look forward to more of the podcast as you all produce them. So take good care, and thanks so much. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. This week, Richard and I have the distinct honor of welcoming our teacher and professor, Father Paul Tarazi, to talk about how he reads the Bible as literature and what its implications are for biblical studies. The very Reverend Dr. Paul Nadim Tarazi is professor of biblical studies and languages at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary and the author of countless books, including commentaries on 1 Thessalonians and Galatians, a three-volume introduction to the Old Testament, a four-volume introduction Introduction to the New Testament, and a number of books in the Chrysostom Bible Commentary series, including commentaries on Genesis, Philippians, Romans, Colossians, and Philemon, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Ezekiel, Joshua, and Isaiah, and also his critical work, Land and Covenant, of which Metropolitan Philip Saliba wrote, Father Paul deals with the conflict between Jews and Palestinians not from an historical point of view, but strictly biblical. No two words better characterize Father Paul's scholarly ministry. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to the 12th episode of the Bible as Literature podcast. It's an honor to have our teacher, Father Paul Tarazzi, here with us. It's been wonderful to have the weekend together to be discussing important topics, and we're happy we are able to talk with him today. Father Paul, the title of our podcast, as you know, is The Bible as Literature. And the title of this program, like the name of our church school program at St. Elizabeth, the Ephesus School, both of these titles are inspired by your teaching and by your scholarship. And so we thought it'd be nice today to ask you to talk a little bit about this concept of the Bible as literature in your teaching and in your scholarship and work, and just give us some perspective on what this expression means. What do we mean when we talk about the Bible as literature? Well, um, the way I got to that point so that I would explain to you what I understand with the Bible as literature, because it is used also by other people, although it's noticeable from the beginning, but when you're studying, usually you go slowly to get to a conclusion. We all grew up with the idea that we had books. The Bible is a big book, but it's made out of books. Even the Greek has igraphi, the scripture, and egraphe, the scriptures, which is very natural. And the tendency in our world, when you say a book, it means you have a book that has a beginning and the end. And if you want to publish a longer story, you call it volume one, volume two. But that's not so in the Bible. But obviously, at one point, I took very seriously the fact that one has a continual story. You know, when you finish Genesis, you move into Exodus, which is a continuation. You move into Numbers and Deuteronomy, Joshua. So... At least this applies to Genesis through two kings, which is a big bulk of literature. And then it is repeated in the Chronicles. So that struck me, and I took it very seriously, that Mm -hmm. things are connected 
and one has to follow the storyline, not only until the end of the book, but beyond that. So when we talk about the storyline, first reading, it does seem kind of disjointed when you read the Bible. What do you mean when you say the storyline of the Bible? I mean, you could have it disjointed even in modern literature. You have flashbacks and so on. Uh The author is... But there is a major line. Take, for instance, the Chronicles. They assume the major storyline between Genesis and two kings, and they compress it. But when they compress it, it remains a storyline. Then, when you move to the New Testament, just to give it another angle, you have the same thing in the Gospels, the so-called double volume of Luke-Acts. The author very clearly links these volumes in my work. I gave it a lot of attention. So here, we have a kind of double volume. In other words, at the end of the first book, the story has not finished. You cannot say for a, and Jesus ascended. That's not what the author intended since he picks up on this. And then I started noticing something more in the structure of the canon that has a lot of impact in my studies, and lately I take it very seriously. That, for instance, people say, obviously, the letter to the Romans is the first letter of Paul because it's the longest and so on. Yes, I mean, I have no problem with that. But when you hear the story of the book of Acts followed by Romans in the canon, the ending of the book of Acts, you hear that Paul was preaching in Rome. And your reaction is to say, what was he telling the Romans? And immediately, so Uh anyway, the idea is not whether I'm totally right or totally wrong. Uh I'm I'm trying to explain how I came to my view of Bible as literature. So a lot of people would read the book of Isaiah and they say, okay, I understand the book of Isaiah, that's a totality. I've read Jeremiah, it's a totality. How does it change things if you say there's a single storyline and you read them together? In my talk today, I stress that because I keep working and I discovered it of late and it impressed me and I discovered it very interestingly when I finished my commentary on Jeremiah. Why am I saying this? Because I first wrote my commentary on Ezekiel, then on Isaiah, then on Jeremiah. By the time I came to the third, although I didn't take them in sequence, I realized that there is a sequence, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. I'll give you one example. You have a progression in not so much the understanding, but the teaching that comes out of the Bible about Scripture. What is Scripture ultimately? When you read Isaiah chapter 8, you have the first indication that Isaiah was asked not to worry if his message was accepted by the people or not, and to turn his back and hope on the Lord. And at that point, he wrote it in a testimony to be kept by his disciples. And then it ends very importantly, so that later people would not go and ask diviners but they go back to the text of the testimony very clearly, the Uh, second uh, part of Isaiah 8. I mean, it's so clear. So you say, okay, that is the importance of the written message for the following generation. Mm -hmm. So I'm stressing this because in my mind it's one stretch, the written message for the following generation. You move to Jeremiah, disregarding how Isaiah ends, you move to Jeremiah, you hear immediately that God, which is not the case with Isaiah, put his words in the mouth of Jeremiah. So it is as though Jeremiah is regurgitating the words of God. When you move ahead in the book, 
to chapter 36, which is a very important chapter, you have, to make a long story short, Jeremiah dictating to Baruch the words that he received from the Lord into a scroll, and then he asked Baruch to take the scroll to the elders so that they would read it aloud to the king. The message of Jeremiah, in the case of Jeremiah, went as a writ to the king. Now, again, you have a twist at the end of the chapter that goes beyond that, that the king shreds and burns the document, so it disappears. Where is it? Then at the end, chapter 36 says, Jeremiah calls Baruch and sits him down and re-regurgitates the words of the Lord. He doesn't tell Baruch, well, you remember basically what it is. He doesn't say that. And the text says, he adds to it the fact that the king shredded. (laughs) Otherwise, you wouldn't have that story. Which means that the writ is very clearly, I'm using a modern word, beyond the original oral message. It is what it is. And then, at the end of chapter 51, we have a text that is very strange. I never noticed it until I started. I mean, I noticed it, but it was not functional in my mind until I wrote the commentary on Jeremiah. He throws the scroll in the Euphrates, which is very strange. And then chapter 52, it's a repetition of 2 Kings 24, Mm -hmm. 25, that Jerusalem was, and they went to Euphrates. Now, if you're hearing scripture following Jeremiah, and I'm not talking about the Septuagint with the Lamentations and so on. The following book is Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel is precisely in the area of the Euphrates, and he receives from the Lord a scroll already written on both sides that is shoved in his mouth. At that point, I realized there is something going on. (laughs) There is a movement, a progression, whatever the word you want to say, which means that having begun with, I mean, I did what I had to do because I was studying, But now, if someone asks my opinion with which commentary I have to start, your books, you know, I'll say first you do Isaiah, and then Jeremiah, and then Ezekiel. Although I wrote Ezekiel, it doesn't matter. Because myself, if I have the opportunity to make a second edition, or one of my students, one who hears me and interested to speak, he will include this discovery because it is functional, it's important. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Father Paul, because when you're speaking, you're speaking from the content of the stories. We began with this assertion that it's a storyline. Well, listening to Father Paul talk, it's no longer an assumption. He's just demonstrated on the basis of the content of those three texts that there's continuity. So I think you answered the question with the data from the story. And that Because ultimately, again, as I was teaching this morning, the story is parabolic for instruction. So it's a parable. And thus, the totality is important and every statement is important. I remember Richard, when I preached a few years ago about the parable of the Good Samaritan, and at the end you told me, wow, it's the first (laughs) time I heard when you said that the texts say that the priest was descending from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was not ascending from Jericho to Jerusalem. (laughs) And then you took it seriously and explained how it functioned in the story. So I moved here in my two examples, perhaps you led me, luckily, from three big books to one parable. It's the same thing, that ultimately we have to learn to be bound and then the writ is basically a literature. It's not a word nor a 
phrase, nor a sentence, nor a paragraph. Mm -hmm. It's moving. And let me give you another example, if I have time, which I repeat very often. Two levels. Number one, let's take Luke 15. He has three parables in tandem. Matthew has only one of them, but Luke has three parables. And anyone who hears it, you don't have to be a genius, will notice that you have a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. I mean, it's mentioned, lost, lost, lost. Then you have the other key word, rejoice with, rejoice with, rejoice Mm. Ah, with. So there is something going on, in other words, Luke, because two of the parables are his, meaning that he put it in a way that he's inviting the hearer to realize that not only one parable is a totality in itself, but from the way he put it, he wants you to realize that the three are interconnected. Now, the conclusion, it doesn't matter for my point, is that you are submitting to this fact. Mm -hmm. You can't begin, I want to take the parable of the lost coin and then make an issue. You can't, I am saying. Now, I'm going to show you how in the third parable, which is the longest, the issue is more complex because you have, besides the main person, two actors, not one, two sons. Now, calling this parable as we usually do, the prodigal son, is misleading because it's incorrect. Because let's say I hear it, and then at the point where the prodigal son returns, I say, that's enough for me. That's the part I'm interested in. That's very wrong because, no, you have to continue because the lost prodigal son is brought up at the end of the parable after the inclusion of the older son. And slowly on you realize you have to correct the title by calling it perhaps the compassionate father. We actually talked about this exact exegesis of the story last week, and we mentioned that this was something you insist on in the classroom. Yeah, but I tried now, because I've been teaching officially at a seminary 44 years, but beyond that I started teaching when I was 13 the Bible. So it just things are getting clearer and clearer to me that literature is to be heard. People knew that in the times of Homer and so on. People could not read. And if I may here, reading gives you control. Like when you're reading, you can flip pages. How many times people cheat and look at the end. Now, children don't like you when you do this. Once you hear, they (laughs) hear the first time there, they stop you. How do you know that? Why? It's not because they want to stay longer up, because at one point they sleep, perhaps in the middle of the story. Because in their mind, the rest does not function. If you omit that the ship stopped in Ephesus, and then later in the story there is a mention to that, it perturbs the line. And that's what I mean by literature. Literature is a word from Latin, which means litera, letter, and then a letter is part of a word that is part of the... So it's very organic, and perhaps, how shall I put it, prepared me for that, mm-hmm. because I confess it, is the medical studies I did before theology, where you're dealing with biology. Biology is biology, for instance... In my time, you know, you could be a cardiologist by concentrating on the heart. Slowly on, they realized that the cardiologist should also have a good knowledge of the kidney. And vice versa, the nephrologues had to. Why? Because the body imposed itself on them. It's not they created. We have to be very careful Mm. to discover something is not equal to create something. Uh You discover something which is there. And again, 
Why? Because it has the hypertension and so on. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to go into it. So that prepared me. And in my time in the 60s, we began already to, at that time, DNA. So I started my medical studies at a time which was really, things were stirring. And that's the idea about the totality. But the totality does not mean that you don't have to listen to the heart. I don't know. This may have prepared me to be more receptive to the fact that if it has to be in the text, you cannot put it. If it is there, mm -hmm. then I have to take it into consideration. I may not dismiss it by saying, oh, it was an addition here, an addition there. And, so, uh, and my basic example, which is the late in my life, uh, is like the seal, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. And I don't want to do it here. I can expand it even to the scroll of the 12, but mm -hmm. it's enough to speak about three mm -hmm. different books. Right. So we have people who are at home who are reading the Bible, for whom the Bible is challenging. If you were to tell them they should read the Bible as literature, what would you recommend that they do? What kind of advice could you give to people for reading the Bible on their own? First of all, I would recommend that they would not read it. They would buy CDs or tapes and listen to it, ah. number one. Number two, they can go by, oh, a friend of mine told me that the book of Ruth is really, no. You have just to start listening canonically. And for me, canonically is the Hebrew text, because many books that were put by the Septuagint before are in the third part, the Ketubim. Which, okay. But doesn't matter. You can do it either way. But then if you follow one of the two, you have to stick with it. If you want to hear the Septuagint, that's fine with me, because I can tell you the reasons why they did that. But you cannot switch within or the Hebrew as it stands, and slowly on, it takes time. It takes time. You know, it's like people, how they discover things in biology, you know, by listening again, checking. I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. So perhaps Bible as literature is a great way to learn patience because only the patient until the end will inherit the kingdom. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a great way to conclude the discussion, yeah. Father Paul. It's, it's such an honor to have you yeah, here. Thank you very much, Father Paul, for speaking with us. Thank um, you. Thank you very much. And I'm just going to ask, this will maybe be an epilogue to the, the program, but could you please tell us your story about the patriarch of Romania? Would you commit that? Oh, <laughs> oh how I made the... The sin of my life, uh, it's... Uh, <laughs> wait a minute, wait, wait. Uh, I, no, wait. I, I scratch preached, it out, scratch it out. Don't. <laughs> I preached always against it throughout the generations, and I committed it, and it taught me deep humility. Perhaps I don't show it, but trust me, it's there. I was belittled to the maximum. I was in Romania uh, studying theology, and Patriarch Justinian of thrice-blessed memory he was a fantastic man, a father, really, uh, without going in detail about him. So when I went there, around that time, uh, the Church of Romania opened itself uh, because it was allowed to have people coming from all over the place, Ethiopia, Uganda, Lebanon, Syria, Western Europe, uh -huh. Canada, to study. I mean, mm -hmm. we were students galore from mm -hmm. different and all these received a full scholarship tuition and board and clothing and during the stay plus the trip from home originally the patriarch decided you know i'll bring you and i'll send you every summer home to see you he was very wow. fatherly but due to the number he said, look, friends, I can't afford that. I'll pay you the trip to Romania. In the second year, the study is four years, a trip back home and the return. And in the fourth year, I send you back. 
In the meantime, if you want to go in between, you're free in the summer, but you have to pay. You know, I can't. Uh-huh. That's the way he said it. He didn't say, that's my rule. Because we all heard it that originally the rule was different and it changed. So he was very honest. I myself, at one point, for a reason I need to enter into it, I pushed myself. The dean suggested, you're allowed, since you did the university studies, to do your studies in three years instead of four. So at the end of the third year, in the summer, I did the fourth year and the comprehensive entrance to the MTH. I was really completely wasted. I was just, uh, my mind could not absorb anything. So I went to the pattern and said, I would like your permission to go for six weeks or eight weeks, and I promise you I'll make up. Obviously, he knew that I could because I did that work before. I mean, please allow me to go. I, I can't. And he said, Nadim, not only am I going to allow you, but I'm going to pay you the trip to Lebanon and back. And I made the big mistake of my life. I said, your beatitude. <laughs> but you said that you won't pay it. So he looked at me with his magisterial grin. He said, Nadim, Nadim, what do you mean I can't do it? I'm the patriarch of Romania. <laughs> <laughs> said the others, let them do what you did. <laughs> so that's the story Father Mark is referring to. And believe me, since then, I'm a different person. <laughs> Fantastic. I may be harsh with my students, but also compassionate. <laughs> Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.